This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can help by donating at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis, and today we are joined by three incredible women. Many patients notice the signs and experience the symptoms of cancer long before diagnosis. This was not the case with Molly. Molly's first and only symptom was a migraine headache that compelled her to call her best friend, Martha, who took her to the emergency room. A scan of the brain led to a sobering cancer diagnosis. Molly had an advanced form of brain cancer called glioblastoma multiforme, or GBM, the most aggressive type of brain cancer. Molly's best friend, Martha, and Martha's sister, Conquer Cancer board member, Dr. Amy Peterson, supported Molly on her journey, and they are all joining us today to share their stories. Welcome to the three of you, and thank you for being here. Now, Molly and Martha, I can see that you're together, which is very fitting. Where are you physically today? I am at Martha's home in Minnetonka, Minnesota. We both live in Minnesota. Yep. Fantastic. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. The frozen tundra. I love it. And Dr. Peterson, or if I can call you uh, Amy, where are you located? Absolutely. Please call me Amy. I actually escaped the frozen tundra of Minnesota, and I'm coming to you live from California, Northern California. It sounds like you've thawed out a bit. I, I did my training at the Mayo Clinic. My Texan wife counted our time there in winters, not years. So I'm very familiar with the climate and, and love. I love the people of Minnesota, and I'm sure that uh, you guys are no, no exception to that. Molly, this is largely about your story. And I think one myth about cancer, or one misunderstanding at least, is that we can screen for all cancer. And in fact, I would argue it's the minority of cancers for which we can screen, which means that the first indication of cancer is often what the patient themselves are noticing. And that means that you may suspect signs or worrisome symptoms before you've been formally diagnosed. So do you mind telling us how this all came about and how you knew to seek help? I'm happy to. I had a one-time headache. I had nothing that led up to it other than this isolated headache. I was working as, ironically, as an oncology nurse, and I was driving home from work, and I had a sudden headache that came on very quickly. And I arrived home and called Martha for the last of our many daily phone calls. And I described a headache that I didn't understand. It was staggering. The pain was staggering. The, how quickly it came on was just, and I was out of, sort of out of my mind. And I told her that I was going to take a leftover tramadol and go to bed. And I wanted her to wake me up, call with a wake up call in the morning to make sure that I was okay and that I was up for work. And so she told me to pack a bag and get ready and go in. We went in for a scan and that's when I was diagnosed. In hindsight, I believe I had a couple of seizures that I didn't recognize as such at the time. One was when I was having some dental work done and I had nitrous oxide and I think I had a seizure, but the hygienist didn't recognize it as such. A second time, I fainted <laughs> in my kitchen. When I recall it now, I think it was a seizure. But at the time, I just thought maybe I hadn't had enough to eat or maybe I'd had too much to drink the night before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
I didn't know what it was. I was able to get up and kind of move on and life just went on. And I didn't recognize them as seizures at the time, but I think they were. But it was the headache. Yeah, a lot of these things are only clearer in retrospect, right? Now, right. You know, I want you to know on the medical side, in our training, we are taught if the patient tells you, doc, this is the worst headache of my life, you take that seriously. Is that how you would describe this particular headache, Molly? No doubt. I had not had a headache before. I am not a headache sufferer. And I said to Martha, I can't explain how bad this is. And it was at that time when her significant other, who was a surgeon, said to Martha, exactly what you just said, you have to get her to the ED, which she did. Yeah, that sent up the red flag. So you mentioned getting the scan, which of course is you know the way we look inside our skull. I can only imagine all the different sort of sensory inputs you were having at that time. Obviously, you're in pain, you're in extremis in the emergency room. Just kind of walk us through what you remember about having the scan. And I think probably just as importantly, how you interpreted the results. Well, you know, so much happens in such a short period. And of course, I was full of a lot of pain medication. Interestingly, I felt a huge sense of relief to be out of pain. But your headache never went away. Your, Your pain resolves abdominally. Well, so that's another piece of this. I had some referral pain before the Mac Daddy headache, and I had had a a removal of an ovary about two months prior to all of this. And I thought I was having this pelvic pain, I thought was what the primary issue was. And so when I was working as a nurse, my gynecologist worked a half a mile away and I got in quickly and I said, I'm having this crazy pelvic pain. I'm sure it's from the removal of the ovary. And she made me some tramadol. At that time, the headache started to sort of set in. This is what's staggering is I couldn't decide what was worse, the headache or the pelvic pain. And then on my drive home, the headache pain became increasingly. I knew I needed to pull off the road and call 911. It was that bad, but I didn't because it was during rush hour and I didn't want to cause any kind of backup. So I just kept going. I got home and I called Martha and I said, I can't explain this. That's what you get for being a considerate motorist. You suffered on your drive home, your commute. Isn't that weird? It's a Midwestern, you know. No, no, I'm not really that kind. (laughs) Yeah, so I called Martha and I said, I just, I, this is, I couldn't put words to it. And I said, please call me in the morning. Martha called me back within about five, 10 minutes and said, Physician, significant other, Bob, said, you don't mess around. When someone says they have the worst headache they've ever had in their lives, you don't mess around. Yep. And I don't mess around with Martha. When she says, be outside, I'm like, okay, I will. So she took me to the emergency room. Yeah. What I was kind of getting to is there's so much science in oncology, but I'm also really interested in the art of medicine and specifically how we break bad news. I have, in my own family, seen it done well, and I've seen it done horribly. And I'm just curious, and I I realize you were on pain medicine at the time, and and Martha, this may be where we ask you to chime in. What was the experience of being told that your scan looked abnormal? Yeah. So Molly was full of a lot of Dilaudid and morphine at that time. So I was there, and my significant other came as well to kind of be there and assess the situation. He had privileges at this hospital. And they kept giving her, and it was controlling the abdominal pain, but not the scan. And so they delayed actually getting the brain scan for quite a while. That's right. 
finally, you know, they said, okay, we've managed the abdominal pain. We can't get the migraine, the headache under control. You know, they always preface it as it's probably nothing, but we're just going to do a brain scan to see. So they took Molly and they did a scan. My significant other, when it came back, left the room and went and looked at it. And I very specifically recall him looking at me and shaking his head, like, prepare for what they're going to come in and tell you. And they came in and they said, you have a very large brain tumor. They did not say glioblastoma at that time because obviously there was no biopsy as confirmation, but they did say about the size of a baseball, their lobe, and showed it. And um, then we just started talking about what's next. You have to have surgery right away. And I think there was just total and complete shock, right? Because they, it was set up as this is not anything to worry about. We're just going to do the scan. And then the next thing we heard was there was a baseball-sized tumor. And I believe that we called Franny, Molly's mom, right away to call. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're admitting you and we're going to do surgery within a day or two. Talk about whiplash. I mean, the amount of time that elapsed or didn't between your ER visit, hearing the scan result and having to go to the operating room. You may have heard this phrase in neurology. We often talk about localizing the lesion. What that means is a very gifted neurologist, just by physical exam, can look at someone, can look at their movements and their sensations, and can often tell you where the problem lies in the central nervous system. But for the rest of us, it almost always requires pictures of the brain and or the spinal cord. And what I'm getting at is, you're right, they preface this as saying, hey, listen, your skull is a black box. We're going to look inside. We're probably going to find nothing concerning. But that was the pre-scan preamble. And then when you find something, as you experience, the tone totally shifts. And to me, that's the hard part is how you convey that news, even when there's still lingering uncertainty, as you pointed out, Martha, about what exactly is going on. What type of tumor is it? I will say that GBM has a very characteristic appearance on scan much of the time, but frankly, nothing is ever as definitive as the tissue. So Amy, really quickly, I want to bring you in as someone with uh, obvious medical expertise at what point did you get involved and how were you supporting Molly Thrillicus? Yeah. So I recall very distinctly getting the call from Martha. As you sort of highlighted, I know this area. I'm an oncologist. I trained at the University of Chicago. When Martha called me in 2012, I recall very much being grim about the situation with Martha and the very likely outcome Molly was going to face, which was not surviving this and trying to prepare Martha for the worst. You know this, but maybe not everybody who listens to our podcast know this, but nearly half of people who are diagnosed with GBM die before a year is up and 95% die within five years and over 99% die within 10 years, which means 1%, Molly's in the 1% who live more than 10 years. And so having that knowledge and not knowing what Molly's outcome would be, it was really around trying to support Martha and trying as well to make a commitment 
to Martha as she and Franny, Molly's mom, committed to Molly, right? So they committed to the daily care for Molly. And what I committed to was to do everything that I could within my capabilities and within my Rolodex of people that I knew. And so started making telephone calls to some of the known academic physicians who specialize in brain cancer to really discuss what would be the best course of care for Molly. Thank you so much, Amy, for that input. And you know the expertise that you brought here, I'm sure was vitally helpful at a time where Molly truly needed it. Molly, as I understand it, you've been through more than one surgery. You've been through radiation therapy in combination with chemotherapy, and you've also received over a long course of time a drug called Avastin or Bevacizumab, which Dr. Peterson will know well. There's one thing I want to comment on there before I let you answer, which is that I think there's a, a little bit of a misunderstanding that all cancer treatment is necessarily, quote unquote, chemo. What I want to highlight here specifically is the importance, as you have personally witnessed, of multidisciplinary care. Traditionally, we've thought about sort of three different fields that converge, frankly, in the care of many patients. The surgical approach, a neurosurgeon or a surgical oncologist, the radiation approach, and then what I'll call the medical approach. And frankly, the reason I want to use that word is what I do as a job is not just chemotherapy. These days, it also involves what we call biologic agents, and you receive one of those, and also immunotherapy, which has a sort of a burgeoning role in some, but not yet all cancers. So can you just kind of walk us through, obviously, you had lots of doctors involved in your care. How did your team assemble, like in what order? And then what did your treatment plan look like? Well, initially, the care team offered what I knew to be the standard of care, which would have been and was six or eight weeks of brain radiation and two years of oral temidar, oral chemo. But before this was even explained to me, I knew that there was going to be a standard of care available to me and offered to me. It was encouraging to me. But I also knew at the same time, Martha was talking to Amy, who was working her channels, like she just explained, to talk to Henry Friedman and the people at Duke to sort of explore some things that would either, and at that time, I didn't know if it would augment standard of care or if it would be instead of, I wasn't sure, but I just felt very blanketed with a lot of luck that I had standard of care and then some alternative options. It was looking more and more like they were going to be used as well. I just remember feeling lucky because I was like getting the basic stuff that would be available to everyone. But then I also had this other layer only because of luck, only because of my friendship with Martha and her sister and her sister's skills and expertise. And so it's sort of like after the crummy curveball, it was sort of like, yeah, but I have access to really good standard of care. But then it gets better because yeah. I've got Martha and Amy. You make a couple of points there that I just, I just want to emphasize for our listeners. One is, you mentioned it in passing, but I think it's important. Not all chemotherapy is intravenous. I think that's a myth. So you were on an oral drug. And as you well know, just because it's in pill form doesn't make it any less potent or effective. So that's an important thing to note. And the other thing that you noticed is you were involved in, I think, some very cutting edge treatment that was not necessarily less than the standard of care, but arguably went above and beyond the standard of care. And we're about to talk in some detail about research. One of the things that comes up when I talk to patients about clinical trials is they are often worried 
that they are going to be randomized to something that is lesser. And the usual concern is, Dr. Lewis, am I going to be placed on a sugar pill or a placebo? And again, I want to puncture the notion that that's how we do all of our trials. Amy, I may just kind of ask you to chime in here because clearly your expertise was, was helping Molly at a really crucial time. How did you view, either then or now, research informing and influencing her care? Molly needed to go back to the operating room for a complete resection of her right temporal lobe, literally the whole lobe. And I think research, right, allowed us to understand the importance of complete excision. However, we also know complete resection can and often will impact recovery. The temporal lobe is the second largest lobe of the brain and critical to processing both auditory information and encoding memory. And so there was a real quality of life question to going back and resecting the lobe. But then after the surgery, as you noted, comes the chemotherapy as well as radiation therapy. And decades of research, I think, have led neuro-oncologists to understand exactly how much radiation to give, what type of radiation to give, how to focus it. And you don't need whole brain radiation anymore necessarily, right? And that the chemotherapy that was given, Temidar in specific, has its own anti-proliferative activities, but as well can potentiate radiation. So all of that, just the standard of care, right, comes from research. And then Avastin, given during and following the chemotherapy, which you already pointed out, it's a biologic, it's an antibody, it targets VEGF receptor, uh, vascular epithelial growth factor. And GBMs are known for producing a lot of VEGF. And so when Molly's diagnosis was made, Avastin was being evaluated in what we call pivotal studies or phase three studies that if positive, would get Avastin approved in that indication. But it wasn't approved yet. It was only approved under accelerated approval for patients who had recurrent glioblastoma for as a monotherapy for response rates and duration of therapy. So knowing that, having worked at Genentech, having understood the mechanism of action of Avastin, getting Molly's team on the phone and being able to have a dialogue even when the phase three studies read out as negative, right? Avastin has never been approved in the front line because it didn't improve survival. It improved time to progression, but it didn't improve survival. Yet, there were subpopulations that seemed to do well. And being able to have that conversation with Duke to debate, discuss the benefits, the pros and cons of Avastin that was never going to be approved is also part of research. And I think Molly will never know if she really benefited from Avastin. I want to believe that she did, just given her diagnosis, given her age, given all of the other factors that were involved. But we won't ever know. But Avastin was truly the cutting edge research component of her treatment at the time. I don't believe that Avastin would have been offered to Molly if Amy weren't involved. Amy was very insistent of, there's no reason to not do this. This is an opportunity. You do everything you can. And then in turn, Molly was also the same. She's like, we're doing that, whatever we have to do. Right. And her mother was the same way. It was like, there's not, it's not, should we? It's when can we start? How quickly can I get on a plane? Right. 
And, you know, a lot of my patients tell me that I deal with some pretty serious cancers myself, like pancreatic cancer in my practice. And some of my patients have said, Dr. Lewis, what do I have to lose? Which I think is a very brave thing to say, because literally when you're at the fringe between evidence and experiment, you know, someone is pushing that boundary. And often it's really courageous patients like Molly. So thank you. It is remarkable to look back over the last 10 years and think about the progress that's been made, not just in GBM, but in a host of cancers. And I'm going to bounce this off you. I think that that progress has largely, almost entirely, happened through research. I think it is very infrequently the case that we make massive leaps forward just by blind luck. Now, in the history of medicine, that's happened. The discovery of penicillin was a happy accident you know, by Dr. Fleming. But in oncology, those sort of happy accidents have happened less often, and we need to be very, very rigorous about clinical studies. And that takes both researchers, but it also takes brave patients like Molly. Molly, do you sense, and obviously you know Amy, but do you sense in a kind of a larger context that cancer research has been helpful, not just for you, but for other patients that you might know? Yeah. My Mom comes from a family of eight girls, and four of them had breast cancer. Two of them died from it. One died from pancreatic cancer. So, I mean, I'm not a stranger to the disease. And I think that at least because I spent so much time with my mom, we came together with um, real gratitude for people who were willing to commit their lives and their skill and their resources and their to research. You know, when I look at my own family, you know, my dad had cancer in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, and his treatment today would look vastly different than it did then, both in terms of effectiveness and tolerance. And again, the reason for that is not just the passive passage of time. It is actually quite obvious to me that it's the deliberate attempt to make things better through research. And again, someone like you, and, and I want to make this clear to our audience, because I don't know if the you know, quote unquote average person understands quite how miraculous you are. I mean, as Amy put it, I hate to even boil down to a statistic. You're a human being. You're not a number. Having said that, you are at the top of your class. You are easily the top percentile of survival from GBM. Like when I learned about this, it was easily one of the most fearsome tumors I heard about. And it's right up there with some of the, I think, probably better known threats to people's livelihood and longevity, like pancreas cancer, like certain forms of lung cancer. So your survival is remarkable. I think that's a testament to you. I think it's a testament to your support network, which includes Martha. And I think it's a testament to this very high level of care that you achieved partly through knowing Amy. So Amy, having said that, you serve on the Conquer Cancer Board. So you, you're an oncologist, you're involved in industry and research. What drives you to serve in that role? Sure, that's easy. And going back, you know, to what you were saying about Molly really being one in 20,000, right? It's a miracle because while the incidence of GBM on an annual basis might be 15,000, the deaths are 12,000. I didn't compare that to something like breast cancer, where the incidence is a quarter million in the U.S. But the deaths from breast cancer is a fraction of that, 20% of that, 40,000. So GBM, as you pointed out, it's a near deadly 
diagnosis. All of my professional life has been devoted to helping patients with cancer, right? Specifically to developing new therapies. When I was training at the University of Chicago, I was researching immuno-oncology before anybody even knew how to spell checkpoint inhibition or PDL one right? <laughs> we were laughed at to think that the immune system could actually be trained to identify uh, and fight cancer. And now here we are today. With immuno-oncology, in fact, the number of tumors that can be treated with an IO therapy, it's easier to say the ones that can't. And we've already talked about one of them, right? GBM prostate cancer, very few others, right? So I've always been devoted to this. And even in, in industry, that is what I do. I worked at Genentech. I worked at other biotechs, all about advancing the care for patients with cancer, developing new therapies. And that drives me to serve on the Conquer Cancer Board. However, I offer one of the mindset that we are never done. We are never satisfied and we never give up. And I knew that I could do more and I wanted to do more. And so it became a no-brainer for me to be able to now go out and find people, find donors, find companies and corporations that were willing to, wanted to advance cancer care. And finally, I myself am a donor. So I'm trying to hit it from all angles. Or if I'm going to talk the talk, I better walk the walk. And so being able to fund researchers and understanding their appreciation and gratitude for that funding, no matter the size, it could be a YIA, uh, you know, $20,000. It could be a career development award, which is several hundreds of thousand dollars given over the course of time. To give a young and budding investigator that confidence, that boost, no matter how small the size or the duration. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling. I was a recipient of a merit award, so I know the feeling. It really encourages you to keep on keeping on and write more grants and, and do more research. And so it's just gratifying. It's a blessing to be able to help Molly's. And I want to make more Molly's. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> 100%. Being able to listen to the joy of Molly's laughter, it's a blessing. And so the more that we can do that, that I can do that, that I can encourage others to fund, it's critical. Well, Amy, thank you for, first of all, your service on the board. And secondly, for closing the feedback loop where so often a researcher may not get to hear the outcome of their findings. And you're right. Like we literally just heard Molly's infectious laughter, it sort of echoes years after her diagnosis and, and treatment, which is just wonderful. I also want listeners to know, sometimes cancer researchers, I think there's almost like a stereotype that these are, you know, very dispassionate people in white coats and, you know, pipetting into test tubes. And yes, that's partly true. But everybody I know in oncology at any level has this attraction to the field that both comes from the head. The science is very exciting but also comes from the heart. Like stories like this matter. And yes, we love our statistics. And yes, we love big numbers because they give us what we call statistical power. But those stories are so crucial. I think as humans, narrative resonates with us just as much, if not more than math. And that's why, you know, we have a podcast like this. It, it, it tells a story. So Molly, I want to make sure I put the spotlight back on you. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, well, you're the star. You're the star. What is your advice to someone that's been diagnosed 
with cancer. And let's kind of put it in that time frame. You've just been diagnosed. It sounds like, especially with Martha, you sort of explored a support network, but just, you know, generally speaking, if someone out there is listening, they or a friend or family member has just been diagnosed, what do you recommend doing? What I would do, because it's worked for me, is tell anyone who is diagnosed with something as awful as glioblastoma or any other type of cancer is to surround yourself with really good, smart people who you can have some fun with and with whom you can laugh. And, you know, I've taken really good care of myself and I've done my part and I've taken the opportunities that were put before me, which is cutting edge technology and research. And I've found a lot of benefit to being grateful for these opportunities that have been presented all along the way. I know that you went through a lot of your treatment from the instinct for self-preservation, for survival. But I also want you to know you've helped other people. There's always this argument, is there such a thing as true altruism? I think what you have done is very brave, and I also think it's very charitable. And I want people out there to know who are listening to this, you don't necessarily have to know an Amy. You don't have to know an oncologist to get connected with resources that can help you. Yes, Molly's story is exceptional. But in the modern age, there are a remarkable number of resources by which you can network. And right now we are recording this virtually. I've actually not met in person these women. But in the same manner, you don't have to necessarily meet people that can assist you in your search for what is best. And your oncologist still plays a role here. I know we talked earlier, and I think it's a fair point that a local oncologist may not have the same resources or knowledge as someone that specializes in your specific cancer at what we call a tertiary center, a destination medical center. Having said that, many of those people are available to you online through clinical trials, databases, and through support groups. And when you are the ultimate stakeholder in your outcome, I personally think it is eminently reasonable in the modern age to use the computer, and to use your network. Because again, it's your health that's on the line. So Molly, we always finish the pod with a, a question that we direct to the patient. How would you say that you are conquering cancer? I have the best life and I know it. And I'm conquering cancer by breaking it down by the first five years of getting better by getting better physically. Then I spent a few years getting my head on straight with some good psychotherapy. Now I'm clearing the way to figure out what's next in terms of how I can, and this sounds like a cliche and that I don't mean it to be, but how I can make things better, how I can make things better for someone or more than one person. I just feel like I'm in this really cool space of making it through some crummy stuff, but I have so much left that I have more to give and more to do. And I feel like I'm finally in a place where I recognize it and I'm ready to act on it. I was going to say that Molly, I think it's important to acknowledge that Molly never let her diagnosis define her. Molly, every day, she never complained. She never had a bad attitude. And I think that is also how Molly continues to conquer cancer. She still never complains. I mean, you've heard her say, I have the best life. That's conquering cancer. That's not letting cancer define her. Do you know what? You just, right. Yeah. See what she said. (laughs) 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 And you know, she echoes something. It didn't come to me earlier, but my mom, 
Iowa farm girl, not big on the compliments in general, said to me before she died, and she was with me throughout the whole thing. She went out to do with me every two months, and she was kind of my, my partner. And she said to me, honey, you have not once throughout the whole process of brain radiation and chemo and Avastin and traveling and not being able to be a nurse anymore. She said, I have never heard you complain. And I was so taken aback by that. And I guess like Martha said, maybe that's how I'm conquering it. You know, the fact that you identified the five-year milestone, which sometimes, I'll be honest, feels a tad arbitrary to me. I've had patients die at the 61st month after diagnosis. And I think, you know, yes, they had the five years, but, you know, that didn't mean they were quote-unquote cured. You are someone that has been through it. And, you know, I totally understand the need to rebuild both physically and, and mentally. I'm glad you gave voice to that too. But clearly you're giving back. You've given back to your mother. May she rest in peace. You've given back to other people and you're giving back right now. And I'm really, really grateful to you all. You most of all, I think, Molly, for sharing your story today. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. This is a wonderful use of this platform to share your experience. So with that, I thank you for listening to this podcast, which is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured, and every survivor is healthy. You can help by donating now at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.